0: Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Brightflag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Sandy McDonnell. Sandy leads legal operations at DocuSign and has over a decade of experience in technology, legal ops and business. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Sure, super happy to be here.
0: Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which is actually where I live today. I certainly did not appreciate it, though, until I left. It's kind of one of those classic situations where you grow up in a beautiful place and you have to leave to enjoy it. So I was absolutely one of those teenagers that said, I hate snow. And so... Left, went to California, and now I'm back, and super happy to be back in Boulder.
0: Well, I gather it's one of the most popular destinations. in in the midst of COVID, there was a lot of people relocating to to Colorado generally, Boulder specifically, and uncovering what a, what a wonderful place it is to live. Bringing you back to your childhood, then, how would you have described yourself as a kid?
1: Yeah, you know, I spent some time thinking about this, and I'd say the thing that came to mind for me was creativity. So I recall many evenings of my childhood rearranging all of my furniture in my bedroom uh, to the point where I actually built a two-scale model of all of my furniture so that I could move it around on paper before I actually started pulling my bed around and that sort of thing. You know, I also think I had a little bit of an entrepreneurial flair in there. Uh, I, I was thinking about another time where my friend and I wanted to have a lemonade stand, and we we didn't have any lemonade though, and so we thought, what what do we have? Well, my parents' backyard had crab apples, and we decided to make crab apple applesauce and sell that. I I don't remember if anyone bought it. I hope that they did not, because would not recommend any crab apple sauce. Consuming that anyway, but you know the idea of like taking what you've got, making something with it you know, I've never really been one to follow recipes super well. And so clearly that really started from a young age, just using what I could find in the backyard and pulling it together and putting up something that, you know, maybe people bought, I don't know, it was a good learning experience.
0: Yeah, it's a definitely so, a, a differentiated offering from your typical uh, lemonade stand. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you did have plenty of customers. And what then was your biggest takeaways? And what did you enjoy most from your, your time at college?
1: Yeah. So in college, you know, I, I ended up in California, I'd say probably due to the weather. I don't know. I was used to so much sunshine here in Boulder uh, that I, you know, I picked California probably because of the weather, the lifestyle, but also, you know, just a great place to be. College for me was, was really, you know, I loved it. I can't say anything else about it. I, I was a lifeguard. I enjoyed that. I was really engaged in my um, sorority life. I had a number of leadership positions there. And then, you know, I studied political science in Spanish. And the reason that I did that was, I thought I was going to go to law school. And I thought, well, political science seems like kind of a natural fit. Let me just, you know, take some classes in that. And, um, you know, that'll tee me up really well for heading to law school. And Spanish was because, I had studied Spanish since I was into kindergarten. One of the really wonderful things about growing up in a place like Boulder is there's a school here that was an entirely bilingual school. And so I started speaking Spanish when I was five years old. I'd like to say I'm still fluent today, although I, I don't get to use it as frequently as I would like, but it's a really a great skill set to have and um, so useful. So I'm really glad that I continued with that throughout my college experience. One of the other interesting things is I landed in the Silicon Valley completely on accident. So when I moved to California to go to school at Santa Clara, I'd never heard of the Silicon Valley. Not something that even crossed my mind. had no idea about this entire world of tech. And so just by kind of pure chance, I landed in the Mecca of tech. I'm super thankful for that. That's given me my entire career, but it was just a pure accident that that's where... I started out just because of, I don't know, the palm trees. Who knows? <laughs> well, I'm loving
0: I'm loving your honesty, Sandy, that it was candidly the weather maybe was the first thing that drew you <laughs> to California. And it sounds like maybe a career in law was the initial path you thought you were going on. What then was your first job after college?
1: Yeah. So, I you know, after college, I thought, great, I'm going to go to law school. I took the LSAT. I was kind of all teed up, ready to go. And then I had a thought of, you know, maybe I should work for a year. Let me just make sure that this this law path is really what I wanted to do. I had a number of internships throughout college where I'd been in, you know, in a law firm. I was an interpreter for the Community Law Center. I worked for the Bar Association for San Francisco. Kind of done all these things to tee up a career um, in the legal field. But, you know, I just wanted to make sure, you know, law school is a commitment. It's a lot of time, a lot of money. Let me just work for a year. Uh, So I was looking for jobs like any other, you know, fresh grad. And my one of my roommates had said, Hey, Sandy, I saw this job for a legal administrative assistant at NetApp. I'd never heard of NetApp. She said, I don't know anything about NetApp either, but it's on the list of best places to work. Okay, well, that seems like a good reason to work there. Uh, And so I, you know, applied for the job, I ended up getting it and that really launched my career in this world of corporate legal. And it was just a wonderful opportunity. I worked for four different legal VPs at NetApp and got exposed to really every aspect of a corporate legal department. So whether it was corporate insecurities and drafting board minutes and helping, you know, get those kinds of calls on the calendar to, you know, working with the head of legal compliance and thinking about what we were doing in Nigeria, so how we were going to support our global contracting function, um, I really got to see everything, and it was just, I couldn't imagine a, a better kind of first step into the corporate world um, than NetApp, and it's it's also where I met Connie Brenton, and that's really what sparked my entire journey into legal operations. You know, it's never heard of legal operations before that, and, you know, jumping in, to a company where Connie was that leader in this space, opened my eyes to this entire field
0: immediately. Sandy, yeah, what what jumped out at me in that your first role being at MedApp was you were really um, the home or the the birthplace of legal ops, the modern concept of legal ops in many ways under under Connie's leadership, which I'm sure had a massive impact. When you think back now with the benefit of hindsight. What do you think your biggest learnings were from that stage in your career, from those early in-house experiences you, you had at NetApp and then at, at FireEye?
1: Yeah. So when I think about you know, those, those early days, what I what I took away from NetApp was just try things. Connie was very, you know, let's just put in something. Let's see if it works. Let's try this new technology. Let's just give it a go and just start. I think that was the other biggest thing that I, I took away from my time at NetApp was just start, just do something. And so when I had the opportunity to go over to FireEye, it was to do just that. FireEye had no legal operations team. It was a team of 13 people when I joined. They had, you know, I always joke about, I showed up on day one and my my cubicle was just stacked with contracts. I'm sure many folks in the legal space have had this experience. And I got to start from scratch. So, you know, ground zero for legal, legal ops there. And it was just such a cool opportunity to take everything that I'd learned at NetApp from watching, you know, really like the leader in the space, like the absolute kind of nobody's done it better in my opinion. Um, you know, seeing Connie do it there and then apply everything that I'd learned at FireEye was just so amazing. So Got to, yes, yeah, like I said, start from the ground up, build everything. You know, one of the, the coolest things that I did was actually implementing DocuSign at FireEye, which now sounds so silly. Uh, but back then, you know, eSignature was still pretty new. People were still not sure, or, you know, is this what we should be doing? Is it okay? Is it legal? Kind of all those questions. Um, and, you know, it was, I mean, it was a huge game changer for us. At the time and you know now it's come full circle right because here i am working at DocuSign today but really just that concept of just start just do something um just show up do something anything you're going to do is going to be better than what you had before and that was really one of my my biggest takeaways from those first two jobs
0: and it's funny it was something i was speaking to jessica van der about on the podcast recently who similarly worked in that app under connie and then went and, and has kind of built a legal ops function Uh, herself uh, now benefiting from all those learnings and it being in that environment I imagine where you're seeing the most advanced usage of e-billing on matter management or contract lifecycle management and these very advanced programs uh, then being able to go back and start with a kind of a clean slate in a legal legal apartment that's growing quickly but as you say is very low maturity in in all those areas is really exciting and just provides you with so many opportunities to, to add value and did you have any other mentors at that stage during your career that that you kind of lent on for advice within the community or that helped along the way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I had a couple couple folks, a um, couple come to mind. One was, you know, we had a wonderful executive admin at NetApp and one of the things that she taught me that has really stuck with me today is the concept of saying no. So, you know, I'm one of those people that just, I always want to say yes, I want to do everything for everyone at all times. And I I learned that lesson really quickly, right? You can't do it all. And so being able to say no, and, you know, push back was one of those lessons that I learned really early on from that EA. And I'm so thankful for, you know, her having taught me that kind of lesson. Uh, One of the other really neat things is that because I knew, Connie, I had the, I had exposure to the entire clock ecosystem from a really early phase. So there were so many wonderful kind of examples outside of NetApp of people that were doing legal operations at, at other companies. And I was able to make some really good connections with folks uh, from other emerging legal departments. So one of the things while I was at, I did while I was at FireEye was actually start the emerging legal departments chapter of Clock. And that was because I didn't have a place to fit in as someone who was leading you know, a legal operations kind of role, but was not at a company the size of NetApp. There was no support for that in the CLOCK ecosystem at that time. And so I had the opportunity because of knowing folks within CLOCK to start that group. And there were so many other folks who were doing the exact same thing, and they became a really close set of peers that supported me, that helped me on that journey of how do you start a a legal operations department from scratch. So I look back on a lot of those other folks in similar situations and, you know, had so many learnings from all of them as well.
0: I've told the story on the podcast before. It was really as a result of meeting Connie and and Mary at a pretty early stage in the formation of CLOCK that we sponsored the first ever CLOCK conference in San Francisco. And I think there might've been 200 odd legal ops professionals in attendance and it's just remarkable to see the growth in the community over, over the intervening years and the thousands of legal ops professionals that exist and men, much of that growth as is, is you've highlighted Sandy has been fueled by emerging legal departments those teams that are, are starting to build from scratch like you were doing at the time and, and it's remarkable the impact you made in helping to kind of create a space for them within the within the clock community and we might come back to that later on but Something that that also stood out to me was you seem to be someone who's very much focused on continuous learning and development through your career. And I know you went and, and did a, a program in advanced project management uh, while you were working. What sort of benefits did that bring you as you started to kind of mature and develop in, in as a, a legal ops leader?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, like you said, I love to learn and I'm always looking for opportunities to do just that. And so I I found this program, the Advanced Project Management course uh, at Stanford, and they unfortunately no longer offer it. Otherwise, I would recommend it to everyone in this kind of role. And I did that because what I realized about being in this legal operations role is, A, it's really tough. Everyone in legal ops knows that. And B, you're constantly having to manage these projects with cross-functional stakeholders who don't report to you in these highly matrix organizations and you're having to influence people all the time, right? You're, you're constantly saying, okay, IT, I need this from you. How can I, how can I influence you to help me? What's motivating you? How can we make this kind of a win-win, you know, what's in it for both of us? What I really loved about this, this advanced project management program was it taught you kind of all those people skills. There's like the hard skills of like, can you use a spreadsheet to manage a project and you set deadlines and that sort of thing. But one of the, the best classes that I took was one called Managing Without Authority. And I think about that just all the time, right? Because most of the people that I work with on a daily basis today and in all my previous roles, they don't report to me, right? I haven't had an actual team report to me until very recently. So when I'm trying to get IT or I'm trying to get HR on board or finance or I'm having to manage them but I don't have any direct kind of supervisory authority over them, right? It's, they're doing something for me because yeah, it's, it's their day job and they're you know paid to do that. Why are they gonna work on my project versus work on another project? And so figuring out how to motivate people um, is, you know one of the biggest things that I took away from that. And it's really that idea of like, what's in it for them? Why are they gonna help me with this project? why is this going to be important to them too? And figuring out what that motivation is. That was a really cool thing that I that I took away from this class. And then the other one is we did a class on design thinking. And that is something that I, you know, whether I use it specifically in my day-to-day work, I don't know, but just thinking outside the box and how do we approach problems in different ways and, you know, thinking about really creative solutions and looking back at some of my, you know, experiences from childhood and and pulling those in, that was another really cool opportunity. And beyond just that, it was this class is people of all levels, you know, I mean, there was like, a chairman of a board sitting next to me. And then there was a software engineer on the other side of me. And, you know, it's so just getting exposure to people with a lot of different backgrounds and, and outside of tech and building some of those relationships, I think was also super valuable. And just getting outside your your comfort zone and meeting people you don't interact with on a day to day basis was another huge benefit of attending a program like that.
0: It sounds like a, an incredible program, one that you took a huge amount away from. As you say, an awful pity that they're not still running it. I <laughs> wouldn't mind doing it. I know,
1: I know. I tell everyone to go do it. Yeah. I wish, I wish the 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 folks on my team could go do that. I'm I'm constantly trying to find similar kind of programs for them to attend, and I just. I can't find one that replicates exactly that, you know, it's, it's one of those sad things that's come out of the pandemic is that we don't do as much in person anymore. And that one, you know, it was live on the Stanford campus. I got to go there for a a couple days over the course of um, a year or so and, and meet these people in person and, you know, sit in the same room with them. And, you know, now that we do so much virtually, I just don't think we get that same experience of having casual side conversations with folks. And, you know, really, I, I find a ton of value in being in the same room as other people. So I hope some of that comes back. And I, I hope places like Stanford start some similar programs. A bit again, because I just think it's, it's so important to be face to face.
0: I couldn't agree more. And it's something internally within Bright Flag we're very intentional about trying to bring teams, the entire company together on the right cadence, because I think you achieve a huge amount more, you learn a huge amount more when you're together in person, you just have a different type of engagement and interaction. And that sort of learning by osmosis you reference from kind of sitting beside the chairman of a board and having that opportunity to interact with them, you don't really get that on a Zoom call or it's, it's virtually impossible to, to recreate that. But, but it's kind of fascinating that point you highlighted about the need to have, I suppose, situational awareness of all of those different stakeholders involved in a project and, and identifying, as you say, what is the value of this to them and in their role? What is it they're going to care about most? And I think that's it's such a critical skill in executing well on projects, bringing people along with you so that they're ultimately successful and are adopted. I've observed it. Obviously it's it's one of the most difficult parts of the job and maybe project management gets a bad rap if people are just thinking about Gantt charts and kind of project planning, as mm-hmm. opposed to the the influence and the, the soft skills, I suppose that go into the, making those things happen as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, I think people get, too wrapped up when they think about project management, it's just managing the deadlines and managing that Gantt chart and, you know, not thinking about how do you actually get buy-in from people? I tell the IT folks that I work with on all the projects I'm working on right now, every day, I'm like, that is great that we've designed this perfect process. We can get it implemented next week. It's going to be live. It's going to be great. I'm like, but did you tell the sales team that they're now going to have to follow a different process did anyone think about asking them first, do we provide the training that they need? Cause you know, it's great if you've developed this beautiful process at the end of the day and you've launched this project and it's just, you know, you've, you've thought you've crossed all your, your T's and dotted your I's and then it comes down to, well, nobody adopted it, right? Like the people weren't on board. You never got the people to buy, you know, who it's going to impact to buy in. And if you haven't done that, then it really doesn't matter if you've done the rest of the work. So every time we start a new project, if it, even if it's the smallest little change we're going to implement, like, well, let's make sure that we have buy in from all the stakeholders first. Like, I don't even want to go down the mm-hmm. road of developing all of our requirements and, you know, thinking about all of these other pieces until everyone is mm-hmm. on board with what we're doing here it's been you know i've been watching it happen and it's fascinating now every time i'm on a call with with my tech partners that's like the first thing they mention and it's just really cool to have watched that shift in this organization that is typically much more driven by you know i'm going to make this process and i'm going to you know make the technical piece of it work and not thinking about the impact it's going to have to the people so it's it's been really rewarding and i'm super excited to see that shift within within our um, tech organizations to a much more people-focused.
0: That's such a great insight. And maybe shifting gears a little bit then, Sandy, you then joined Clock Formally to lead operations for a period of time. What did you enjoy most about that work?
1: Yeah, so this was super fun. I had the opportunity to to leave my full-time job and actually live halfway around the world for part of a year, uh, which was so cool. And as I was making that transition, Connie said, you know, hey, we actually, you know, we could really use some operational support at Clock. This was back in, you know, you hear people refer to it all the time as a book club, right? This was back in the book club days, a little past the, just the book club. We we're up to maybe 40 or 50 members at this point, but Clock was really looking to grow. And so they brought me in uh, to run the operations for the organization. This was back before there was an executive director or a full staff and I helped set up our regional groups all over the world. It was just so much fun. I got to connect with leaders from Seattle to Australia, to the UK, Atlanta, New York, and think about how we were gonna set up a regional group so that people in that part of the world could get together in person and have you know kind of their own book club, right? Everyone wants to sit around a table together, learn from each other, have those casual conversations, and so I helped CLOCK set up that infrastructure to support this all over the globe. And so by the time that I left the organization, I think we were up to maybe 1,500 members or something like that. So really just exponential growth. I think we had 15 regional chapters at that point. And you know, I helped coordinate all of the, the regional sessions, get the speakers together, you know, prep everyone for it. I really just loved getting to know these legal operations leaders from all kinds of companies. It was really exciting and be part of kind of some of those really original conferences of kind of the first conference in Vegas way back when, which, you know, seems like a million years ago, but it was really just getting to know, getting to know everyone. And once I did, and once I set up these regional chapters, letting people get together and realize that they weren't alone. I think that was, you know, in the earlier days of legal operations, people felt like they were kind of on an island, like they were the only person at their company that did this kind of role. And so having the chance to interact with you know, people in a similar role, maybe a different kind of company entirely, but watching them come together and share their pain points and learning from each other was, was really rewarding and really exciting to be a part of that in the early days.
0: And I was lucky enough, Sandy, to kind of um, see a lot of that myself firsthand. Many of our customers were global in reach, and um, and I would have been working with the likes of Mick Sheehy, who was at Telstra yeah. down in Australia. I think he would have been involved in 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 setting up the regional group down there. And similarly, he had a lot of customers in in the UK. He was was lucky to be at your first conference in Amia, that first clock clock conference in Las Vegas, and it is. Um, it is really testament to a, a huge amount of work from yourself and the rest of that that early team and what you achieved. And there were these these legal ops leaders who maybe didn't even have that formal title in these organizations who were crying out for the expertise, for the shared learning, for the community to start building and and, and to kind of rally around it. And it's amazing to see where that has come to today. So uh, well done on, on all of that work. And then what led to your decision to go back to college again to to do an MBA?
1: Yeah, so you know, by this point, you realize I've decided to not go to law school. You know, I I originally thought that that was going to be my career path, and I pretty quickly realized once I I joined the corporate legal departments that I preferred the business side of it. So I loved working with the attorneys. I I find law really fascinating, but I always say you know I didn't want to be sitting in a a cubicle by myself drafting a document and making sure I put the commas in the right place. That just was not the type of work that I enjoyed doing. I really preferred, you know, working with folks from across the company, working on these large-scale projects, figuring out how we could improve our operations. Um, you know, basically figuring out how the, the lawyers could do their jobs better, right? Enabling them to to take away some of the the parts of their job that they didn't like to do. And you know, I I'd always wanted to go back to school, and like I said, I thought I'd go to law school, and when it when I realized that business was what I was more interested in and an MBA was appealing because I'd never taken any business classes in undergrad. I, you know, I, my favorite classes in, in college were things like ethics in medicine, ethics in law, took, you know, a, a biology class. I took English, I took, you know, all kinds of random other classes, but I'd never taken a finance class, didn't know anything about accounting. I thought, you know, these things will be really important to me um, as I further my business career. And so I decided to go back to school, do an MBA. And I picked Colorado to do my MBA, University of Colorado, because I knew I wanted to come back to Boulder. So I'd spent, you know, about nine nine years in the Bay Area and I was ready to land back in Colorado. And I wanted to rebuild my network here. So super happy to have Ended up back in Boulder at the University of Colorado. It's, you know, it's maybe not the the highest ranked MBA program, but I picked it because I wanted to develop my network here. I wanted to build, you know, relationships with people and businesses in this community. And it did just that for me.
0: From what I've observed from people who have gone to the effort, the huge work and effort to go and do an MBA, that it, it can be a massive kind of career accelerant and accelerate that kind of broader perspective on the business, a more strategic view, as you say, maybe deepen skills in areas you hadn't gotten exposed to before, particularly in, in, on the finance side of things. What have been the kind of greatest benefits that it's brought to you in your career, aside from kind of bringing you back to to Colorado?
1: I think, you know, beyond, yes, landing me back in Colorado, I think it's given me a much more well-rounded view of business, working at NetApp and at FireEye. And those were my first kind of exposures to the business world. But when you're in the legal department, in a legal ops type function, you're essentially a service organization to a service organization. If you're in legal ops, you're supporting the legal team as your kind of first client. And therefore you're, you know, you're supporting the customer because, you know, the legal team is supporting other parts of the business and then the business is supporting the customer. But I felt very removed from, you know, from having any sort of direct contact with what our customers cared about and why we were in business and how we could bring a product to market and, you know, what was marketing and what was finance and why it was important. And so what the MBA helped me do was it helps me take an entire career pivot. So it let me take a full left turn out of legal operations. And let me dive into product marketing, which is just could not be more different from what I do today. And so when I think about the benefits of an MBA, it was letting me make that huge career pivot, it was exposing me to kind of, you know, all the functions within business and Sure, I'm better at using an Excel spreadsheet today than I was before. And, you know, actually digital marketing may have been one of the most practical classes because now I understand how even as a consumer I'm being marketed to, which is really fascinating. And, you know, I I got the chance to just meet really interesting people and, and all of that. But what it really did was it launched me into a full left turn of a career pivot. into product marketing. And I think that was one of the the biggest benefits that came directly out of that MBA.
0: It can be very difficult to make that sort of step change in your career without the benefit maybe of, of taking on the MBA program. Maybe for the benefit of our kind of legal audience, you might give us a bit of context about the kind of product marketing, nuts and bolts of that job, what you loved about it. I'm very lucky to work closely with our product marketing team here in Bright Flag, and I'm always fascinated by what they do and some of the most talented people I I get to work with on a daily basis. But maybe for our audience, can you give us a little bit of context about what attracted you to it or what what you loved about the work?
1: It's super interesting, right? Because I ended up not loving product marketing, but I'm so thankful that I did it. And what attracted me to it was The idea that I wanted to be in a more customer-facing role. You know, as I said, I I always worked in corporate legal departments and it's, you know, kind of a back-end function. Didn't have a lot of exposure to the customer, to, you know, what products we're actually building, why were we building them, who was buying them, you know, what was the market need. And so I took a role in in product marketing as a way to just try something completely different, to build an entire new skill set. It sounded really challenging to me really interesting you needed to kind of understand the technology but you also needed to understand the person that was buying it and then you needed to be able to tell that story and i thought you know this is something i've never done before let me give it a go right it's sometimes you have to do things that you realize pretty quickly you don't end up liking but i wouldn't have known that i didn't like that if i hadn't tried it right so it's i knew i liked legal operations i thought that was really cool but I thought, let me go try something totally different, build a new skill set, and see if I like maybe like that better. And you know, product marketing is—I um, think of it as the storyteller. Mm-hmm. It's you're connecting that. What is that market need? What is our product? How do I partner with not only our marketing organization but also the team that's building the product? You're spending a lot of time thinking about messaging. Who that persona is. And these, these skills did not come naturally to me. I do not think this way. I do not write blogs particularly well. I do not come up with like nice headlines and, you know, social media ads. And not that any of that was exactly part of my day job, but the content that I produced, the messaging decks that I produced, the personas that I helped build, all influenced, you know, our social media teams and the content that they created. And so, you know, it was... I got exactly what I wanted out of that role. I got the experience of sitting on kind of the other side of things, of, you know, being on the marketing side where you're, you know, interacting with customers a little bit more directly. I got to go to, you know, some of our conferences. I got to be part of, um, you know, write blogs and, and be on webinars and, and do some of that uh, more customer-facing work. And I also got to understand the company strategy and the market that we were in. And this, you know, I was actually at NetApp again. So it was like round two at NetApp, which is so funny. But I finally learned what NetApp did as a company. You know, when I worked in the legal department, I never knew actually what the products were that we were building, why we were building them, why they were important, you know, the impact that they were having on our, our customers. So it was really cool to join the other side and and learn a little bit more about, you know, actual products that we were building and selling and and how they helped our customers. So very thankful that I did it and that I tried something new and also very thankful that I don't do that anymore.
0: It's so interesting. I imagine one of the benefits now that you're back in legal operations is, is that broader perspective and, and maybe a heightened degree of empathy for the job of your marketing team that that is relying on legal in some ways or, or reliant on legal processes, or as you say, a broader business understanding of the business, the product, your customer base. Do you find that now that you're back in legal operations, there, you just have a, a greater degree of context about the broader business or technology companies more generally and how they're structured?
1: I do and I think one of the really unique things about being at DocuSign is that I partner closely with our product marketing team because I am a DocuSign customer, right? And so if if our product marketing team wants to know, you know, how legal departments use DocuSign as a product and what problems is it helping solve, they come to me, they ask me. <laughs> so it's it's a really unique position and actually, you know, why I was super excited to to join DocuSign, but I use those skills that I learned in product marketing every day. And I think one of the biggest things that I took away from a role in product marketing is the importance of communication. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, in product marketing, I did a lot of sales enablement. And so I would provide um, our sales teams with content about our products, kind of what that value was to the customer, what kinds of customers they should be targeting. Who were those personas that they they should be selling to? In the NetApp case it was like IT operations. Educating them on, you know, who is this person that's in IT operations and why are they going to care about buying NetApp? And today, I, I think about that all the time. I think about who do I need to communicate with internally? If I'm building, you know, a new process, I'm rolling out some change to the way that we do something, I want to implement a new technology I need to have a full communication plan. Mm-hmm. I need to think about all those stakeholders that are engaged. I need to think about, am I going to post it on a Slack channel? And I'm going to put it in an email. And I'm also going to post it on an internet site. I need to tell people about it three times. I need to you know, put on a webinar. I need to record it. I need to make it available for them later. Just really thinking about comprehensively, how am I going to make sure that this information is communicated in a way that is easy to consume it's going to meet that audience where they're at if you know if they're if it's a salesperson i'm going to need to communicate with them maybe through salesforce because that's where they live every day maybe i need to have a little pop-up in salesforce that lets them know about some change Um, because they're not maybe they're not checking their slacks every day or you know just thinking about really like where is that audience and how do i make sure that i've communicated this new change to them really effectively because, like I said before, if you if you haven't gotten them on board and they don't know about it, it's totally useless. And um, that was really one of my big takeaways from product marketing is have a have a really solid communication plan. Think about who you need to reach and how you're going to do it.
0: One hundred percent, and uh, such a great kind of practical takeaway uh, from from that time in product marketing, as you said, and and uh, the importance of influencing those stakeholders and, and communicating and meeting them where they are. Um, and can you share with us maybe a little bit about your strategy at DocuSign and your core areas of focus for yourself and your team?
1: Sure. Yeah. So here at DocuSign, we really cover kind of all the core legal operations functions. Um. When I joined a little over a year ago, it was kind of a back to basics approach, you know, is, it was, you know, unlike FireEye, DocuSign had a number of technologies in place, a number of processes, was, you know, definitely not a net up level, but, but a more in between phase, right? So I wasn't starting from scratch, but my team covers everything from, you know, legal billing, vendor management, managing our spend, knowledge management, metrics, and then a unique part of, of being in legal operations at DocuSign is that we, we also run the DocuSign at DocuSign program. So I'm um, in partnership with our with our technology organization, and we implement our very own products in house. And so I partner really closely with that team uh, to roll out, you know, additional kind of functionalities and, and processes, leveraging our own technology, which is one of the most fun parts of my job.
0: That's an incredibly fun part of the job of something I was chatting to Megan Osling at iManage about as well, where she gets the benefit to, to be the first user for many new features and capabilities. And, and uh, it's so powerful to be able to, to use your own technology to add, add value for the business and, and have a really good understanding of, of the role it can play for the broader DocuSign customers. We also happen to be one that's one of my mo- most used tools. And uh, I'm old enough to remember practicing law at a time when it, it was not widely adopted. And it was an incredibly manual time consuming process, which was in no way, shape or form good for the environment, signing any any document or contract. So things have come, come a long way since then. And, and DocuSign has, has been integral to that journey. And what projects have you been involved with from a legal operations perspective that have had the biggest impact for, for the legal department?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that I'm super proud of over the last year is rolling out a new legal onboarding program. And it's, you know, it's maybe not something that people think about as like a top priority for legal operations. But I'm super, super proud of the work that that I and my team did to roll that out. And it has really helped us have a consistent experience for all of our new hires. Which is so important for getting them up to speed as quickly as possible. So we developed a comprehensive kind of onboarding packet of information. We have a, an agenda template that's like, this is what we hope you accomplish or plan for you to accomplish in the first kind of 90 days. These are all the people you know, all the tools you need to need access to. And it's I think it's just so important today in this virtual world to bring people in and get them up to speed as fast as possible. So I'm I'm super excited about that. I think it's, you know, it it seems insignificant to some people, but if you don't get people onboarded as quickly as possible, then they're just not going to be effective at their jobs. So that's something that I, I'm really thrilled about that we launched over the last year. Um, you know, otherwise I said, we did a lot of kind of back to basics kinds of things. So another, another component is that we focused on our metrics program and looking at, you know, what metrics do we want to capture? How are we going to represent those? How frequently are we going to capture them? And so we did a lot of kind of foundational work over the last year to, to build out a, a quarterly, it's rough dashboard kind of, um, Format for our metrics, and I'm I'm really excited over the coming year to continue to build on what we did in this past year. There's so much more we could be doing um, when we think about not only what metrics are we going to capture, but what decisions are they going to inform. And I'm I'm looking forward to to building on that that foundation from my first year at DocuSign.
0: Well, it sounds like you you've achieved a huge amount, and and your point around the the importance of the onboarding program in this new world that we find ourselves in, connecting people to the the company and the team's culture quickly, bringing them up to speed in what is, uh, I imagine, are very highly skilled roles quickly is not trivial. And, and it kind of goes back to your point about what's been lost from some of these things not happening in person as much as they used to. It is more difficult to do it effectively and kind of attracting and retaining top talent. It's still an incredibly competitive jobs market for lawyers and for in-house counsel. I imagine that is a high leverage activity for your your legal leadership team that if you're getting people up to speed quicker, they're ultimately sticking around and, and happier in their work as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's. I think everyone wants to feel like they belong somewhere, right? And that they, there's a reason that they're there. And I I think, So many people have that experience of coming into a job on day one and saying, what do you need me to do here? Why am I here? You haven't actually given me anything to do. I don't have clear expectations for where I need to be in 30 days. You know, I don't know what my first three months here are going to look like. I don't know who I need to talk to. And it's, that's not a good feeling, right? If you show up on day one and you're kind of unclear why they hired you and what you're supposed to be doing. And so having this onboarding program, in place with these really clear expectations. And, you know, things change. Like, you know, I just hired someone new for my team, which I'm super excited about. And, you know, I I have an idea of what I want him to do over the next three months and priorities could shift and things are going to pop up and other things will be urgent. But at least on day one, he knows, you know, these are my expectations. This is what I think I'm going to accomplish in, in my first few months at DocuSign. And having that sense of belonging and purpose and the work that you're doing is tied to a, you know, a broader goal, I think is is really important. And um, I think, you know, undervalued in a lot of situations.
0: 100%. And then your point around kind of the importance of metrics and having visibility is kind of closing the loop somewhat. You hire a great team, you need to have visibility on what they're doing, what your outside counsel are doing, the demand you're getting for legal services from the business the importance of those kind of foundational metrics and data points to to inform decision making and the next step change is is presumably what you're striving towards, is it?
1: Yep, exactly. Right. So it's we figured out, hey, we can capture these metrics and we've put, you know, every time again, like every time we build a new process, implement a new tool, it's always kind of like, well, what metrics do we want to be able to track out of that? And let's make sure that we've included that as part of our build plan. But then it's what, we, what are we going to do with that information, right? I'm like, why are we capturing this information? Why, are, why am I having you put it in a, in a PowerPoint deck if we're not going to do anything about it? That's the next piece that I'm really focused on over this coming year. And it's, you know, I've seen examples um, on my team where I started capturing metrics around how long it took us to onboard a vendor. And it's not just my team. This onboarding a vendor at any company takes many different teams. There's lots of players, lots of kind of pieces there. But that was a really clear place where i was like now that i'm tracking that metric i need to do something about that this cannot take 76 days to bring in a new vendor this is just ridiculous and so having kind of that data point is really useful and really helpful when i'm when i'm going to you know those cross-functional partners and saying like hey we need to do something about this process like this is just you know this is not acceptable And if I hadn't been tracking it, I wouldn't have that data point to back up my, you know, anecdotal, hey, this is taking too long. I'm looking forward to leveraging some of that, the pieces of of information that we've captured over the last year to inform the decisions of what we're going to do for this coming year. Another example of that is, you know, one of my big priorities for this coming year is looking at legal intake. We have, I think, 25 different ways we intake requests across the legal department again, because I've captured that as a, a metric of source, I suppose, but one of them is hey, we get, you know, hundreds of emails into this one email alias. Okay, and we only get like five into this other email alias. Let's tackle that one where we get hundreds of requests first, right? Let's get our, the biggest bang for our buck and optimize that intake point. And then we'll get to that one that gets like a handful of requests every year or whatever. And it's not kind of as high of a priority. But just you know, using, using these data points that we're capturing to really inform what our priorities are going to be over the coming year.
0: And presumably also kind of influence those stakeholders because it's almost table stakes in other departments where they expect you to be coming with data and metrics to back up business decisions. And so mm-hmm. if you're able to kind of influence why the onboarding process needs to be uh, streamlined or... The intake process needs to be consolidated for particular teams. It's easier to do that when you're you're kind of underpinning those arguments with objective data points, and obviously that that's not necessarily the skill set of your of of lawyers working within the business or what they're necessarily focused on in, in their day job.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's I'm I'm always asked for you know what is the business value of this? Okay, you want to implement this change. What is the business value? And to be able to pull together, you know, some pretty hard facts of this is the number of requests that we get. And, you know, or this is the number of, of this type of contract that gets signed. And, you know, each one takes this amount of time. And you can really build, you know, talk about using that MBA really build like a very, you know, well put together, well thought out business case for why you need to do something. And, you know, that's it's really pulling together everything that I learned in in my MBA, it's pulling together all this work that we're capturing with our metrics um, and helping to influence all of our stakeholders as to why something is you know going to be high value to the business. We're not just doing it to do it. It's, it's going to influence you know our customers at the end of the day. And if you can, you can show that value, uh, much more likely to get your projects to get some attention and dollars thrown at them. So always worth doing.
0: Such great advice, and, and I suspect we could spend a lot longer here, Sandy, but I want to be respectful of your time. Final question for me, unrelated to the world of, of legal ops, living in beautiful Boulder in Colorado, what do you enjoy doing in, in your free time?
1: So normally I am an outdoor enthusiast. I This time of the year I love skiing, um, so you'd find me out skiing uphill mostly, actually, or downhill or cross country. I do all, all the varieties of skiing, Unfortunately, this winter I broke my leg skiing and so oh. my activities are a little more confined to to the indoors. Uh, but typically I am out skiing in the summer. I love to do a lot of running and mountain biking. So I was supposed to run the Leadville 100 ultra race this year, but it's gonna have to wait till next year. So in the meantime, sitting on the couch a lot and, and um, getting lots of work done, which I, I suppose is a good thing too.
0: I hope the leg is on the mend and you'll be back skiing and running and and enjoying the outdoors there very, very soon. But thank you so, so much for for being so generous with your time. Really enjoyed the conversation today, Sandy.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Alex.
0: I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightplag, an AI powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.